This morning, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 73 in the Old Testament. Psalm 73, our scripture reading and our sermon text for this Lord's Day. This is on page 574 in the Pew Edition Bible. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They have set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues stretched through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who was unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord, congregation. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. I hear Bibles closing. Please keep your Bibles open as we hear the word proclaimed this morning. Would you please? Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, one of the great cultural gems in our region 
and I include this as part of the Chicago region, is the Art Institute. And one of the great paintings, among the many great paintings in that museum, is one by a French painter of the 19th century by the name of Georges Seurat. And his painting is so famous that there is a room in the Art Institute dedicated to that, that painting. It's a large painting. I believe it's about 12 feet wide, about 6 feet high. It's a famous painting because of the technique that the painter uses in painting that painting. It, it's not the subject that was so important. It's a depiction of people who are relaxing in a park in a Parisian suburb on a Sunday afternoon. You may have seen it in a number of films over the years. But it's a depiction of, of people simply relaxing upon the grass near a river in the park. But what made that such an important painting was Seurat was categorized as a post-impressionist painter, meaning he came after the time of people like um, uh, the great uh, Renat and others who were uh, Monet and Manet, who were known as the Impressionists, who painted not an actual depiction of what they saw, but really what their impression, what their own interpretation of that scene was. But Seurat chose something else. He depicted the scene not with the stroke of a brush, but by dabs of paint, point by point by point by point dot by dot by dot by dot of green and yellow and red and blue. It took him four years to paint that painting. You can imagine if you're doing it dot by dot. I've often wondered what it must have been like for him to come home from his studio and his wife asked him, what did you do today, dear? Painted dots, painted dots. The Impressionist did not like him. He was roundly critiqued by the Impressionists because those dots were like pixels that we have on our television or computer screens where when you see them in their fullness, there is a very vivid representation, an accurate depiction of what the eye sees. But to appreciate that painting, you cannot stand right up against it. So if you go to the Art Institute, if you stand five feet away from that painting, all you'll see are these dots of color. But you stand further and further and further away. You go to the very back of that room and all those dots, those pixels of colored paint blend together. And you have this beautiful scene of a Parisian park. Well, I think that that analogy is helpful to understand Psalm 73 and what the psalmist is wrestling with. Because the point of Psalm 73 is that we will not understand our lives and the world around us, the course of human history. We will not understand it properly unless we see our lives and ourselves from the perspective of eternity. Not simply standing back in a room, but looking at life from eternity. It's only then that we begin to make sense of our place in the world and what our destiny is, most importantly. To understand this psalm, like so many psalms, you have to understand how it's put together. 
Uh, the more I think about this over the years, and I've teased some of you about Hebrew poetry or about poetry in the Bible, but I think if you had a good poetry teacher in school, grade school or high school, you learn that poetry is appreciated when you understand how it all fits together. You don't read it like you would read the newspaper or a novel. It's put together in such a way as to draw your attention to relationships between one part and another, like pieces of a puzzle. I think that's very true for Psalm 73 as well. Psalm 73 really consists of two parts. Think of it as, as a seesaw, boys and girls, a seesaw of two halves resting upon a fulcrum in the middle. The first half, Asaph is describing an inner struggle, a very dark period of his life, and trying to make sense of that experience. And then the second half. The second half is a song of doxology, of praise, of hope and confidence, of confession of trust in the Lord and of his purposes. And so really, in many ways, the key thing to notice or to discover is where is the fulcrum? Where is the transition in this psalm? And maybe you've caught it already. I'll, I'll not say at the outset what it is. I'll let you think about it for a moment. What is the moment of transition for Asaph where things turn from this darkness to the brightness of doxology and praise? Those two things I want to look at in light of our text. Notice also one other feature of this poem, this uh, Hebrew psalm, is that there are bookends at the front and at the back which affirm God's goodness and the joy, the blessing of being near to God. That shapes really the, the contours of the psalm. On the one hand, he begins by saying what? Truly God is good to Israel. God is good to his people. God is good to Emmanuel URC. To those who are pure in heart. Who are the pure in heart? Someone once said that the pure of heart are those who will one thing. Or we would say one thing above all else. If my heart is set upon God and his glory... That's the best place for me to be. That's the best place for my heart to be. And at the end, what does he say? But for me, it's good to be near God. But you'll notice in the first half of the psalm, you certainly don't get that impression that he feels it's good to be near God. In fact, he's trying to make sense of what God is doing. And he wonders why God is acting the way he's acting. There's something good and healthy, spiritually speaking, about the gritty honesty of the Psalms. Asaph here is bearing his soul. How many of us, I wonder, if you were describing your spiritual experience, would be this honest, this bold, to talk about the fact that you came, as it were, right to the precipice. You were looking into the abyss and were actually contemplating falling into the abyss. The experience of life was that dark, that depressing, that overwhelming to you. 
How many of us would talk that way publicly? But Asaph does. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Why? What's the problem? I thought this was Asaph the psalmist who lives in the the splendid isolation of the tabernacle. Doesn't he live in an ivory tower? Doesn't have to deal with the nitty-gritty of life, the things that you and I have to deal with on a daily basis? He says, I was envious of the arrogance when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Think of it this way. Imagine in a nice little town like DeMott, Indiana, you have two competing businessmen. The first businessman is a devout Christian, godly man. He is a family man. In his business affair, he's known to be a man of integrity. He's well-respected. He goes above and beyond what he's expected to do in his business. There's no shadiness about him. In terms of his family relationships, he loves his wife. He's devoted to his wife. He loves his children. He cares for them tenderly. He makes sacrifices for them. He's an elder in his church, well-respected. People look to him for advice. But he's facing bankruptcy. He's about to lose everything, financially that is. In that same town, like DeMott, you have another businessman, a competing businessman, who's not a Christian. And his business practices are shady. He cuts corners. He cheats on his taxes. He cheats on his wife. He's known to be someone who has no ethical principles he adheres to. And yet he's prospering. And the first businessman sees what's happening with the second businessman, and he is wrestling with that struggle inside about why is it that the wicked seem to prosper? Why is it that I have been so attentive to what God calls me to do and I have to suffer? I face the hardship. And that guy down the street, that guy across town who mocks God and mocks his people, he's flourishing, he's prospering. Why is that, God? Asaph opens up his heart to this. But you see that his struggle has become so warped. It's metastasized so badly now that his vision of the world around him is grossly distorted. I think it's like a hall of mirrors at a county fair. You walk into the hall of mirrors and all of a sudden you're 10 feet tall or you're 8 feet wide. It's not a true picture of who you are. It's a distortion. It's a gross distortion. This is how Asaph sees the world. This is what sin does to our spiritual vision. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Now remember, in the ancient world, and my friend Reverend Anima will affirm, to be described as fat was a good thing in the ancient world. If you were thin, people thought something was wrong with you. Uh, But here, they're sleek and they're fat. 
They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. They've got no trouble. Or so it would seem. So it appears to Asaph, right? They seem to to do very well. They prosper. And what are they doing today? They're not in a worship service. They didn't get up early to get ready for church. They may have slept in. They're going to watch the NFL today. That's what it is. It's football day. It's not worship day. Come on. But it gets worse. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They adorn themselves with pride. Look at me. Violence covers them as a garment. They become abusive. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They begin to bully. They begin to use their influence, their wealth, their prestige to intimidate, to scoff at those who would follow the Lord. It's all about them. Now, I've gotten myself into trouble by using this illustration before, but these are the kind of people that not only succeed in business, but they succeed in business in such a way as they want everyone to know how successful they are. And so they not only build these huge skyscrapers for their businesses, they emblazon the front of those skyscrapers, their names in gold letters, and I'll leave it at that. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts to the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? They say things like, why is there suffering in the world if the God that you worship, the God that you sing to on a Sunday morning, is the God who allows countries and cities to be flattened. Have you seen the footage? I'm sure you have. You know, in past generations, that sort of thing simply wasn't accessible. But to see the bombs having their effect and people having their homes destroyed at that kind of, on that kind of scale, Devastating. Where's God in all of this? Where's God when children are dying of cancer? I've heard one very prominent British atheist put it this way. If God is sovereign and loving and merciful and kind, why did he create this insect, this one insect that plants its eggs in the eyes of little children in Africa. In other words, the only way for it to lay its eggs is to dig into the eyes of little children, and there it lays its eggs, and it blinds the children. And his quip is, what kind of a god would allow that? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. That's his vision of the world around him. Here I am trying to be faithful to my God. Here I am devoting myself to his service. And I see the wicked not only not having to face these things, but they're, they're prospering, they're flourishing. So the conclusion he draws in verse 13 
is all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Do you understand what he's saying here? What he's saying is, what's the point? What was the point of getting up early this morning and getting the kids ready for church if this is the kind of life I'm going to have? What was the point of being a person of integrity in my business, of not cutting corners, of not cheating on my taxes, if this is what I have to go through? If I have to face hardship and struggle and suffering, what's the point? Wouldn't I be better off acting like the wicked out there who seem to have no trouble whatsoever? Again, don't you appreciate the honesty here? What, what person among us would be so bold as to say this publicly, that we actually entertain this kind of thought? What's the point? But he says, if I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So it's as if he goes right to the precipice, right to the edge of the abyss, he stares at the abyss, but he's not going to fall into the abyss. But that doesn't resolve the problem. Notice, he says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. How do I, how do I make sense of all of this? How do I put this all together? How can it be that a a loving and merciful and a powerful God. How can I confess the words of Lord's Day 9? That God is not only almighty, but that he is an almighty God who uses his power for my salvation, my good. How can I say that when I'm suffering as I do? But then there's verse 17 until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Now, if you haven't discovered it already, verse 17 is the fulcrum. It is the hinge that changes everything. But you're saying to yourself, I don't understand. Going into the sanctuary, was it the architecture? Was it the singing? Was it the garments that, uh, that the priests were wearing? What was it? I think we can put it this way. It was at the sanctuary that the psalmist comes into contact with God and his word, with the revelation of God. Or we might say, in terms of our own modern application, it was when the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, was preached that everything changed. Did my circumstances change? No. But my perspective changed, and it changed radically. We are not a health and wealth congregation. At least last time I checked, we're not at Emmanuel. We are not promising that if you give your life to Jesus Christ, you will be cured of all your diseases, that you will have untold wealth, unimaginable success in all your endeavors. We make no such promises. I can remember a number of years ago, some of you know my mother struggled from a number of health issues the last 20-some years of her life. 
And very well-intentioned people at the farm stand would tell her, I think in, in all sincerity, they said, but if you only had more faith, God would heal you. If you only had more faith, God would deliver you from those things. But that's not what Asaph is talking about here. What he's saying, if I may use that analogy of the Art Institute again, he has been looking at life from simply the end of his nose and no further. He's only seeing those dots. But when he goes into the sanctuary of God, he's drawn back and he gets to see the whole picture in all of its beauty. Then I discerned their end, their destiny, what will be their outcome. And so what he will say in this last half is simply this. Why would I envy the wicked? Why would I envy their wealth? Why would I envy their material success when it is temporary and ultimately it will lead them to their destruction? Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Anyone who studied history knows this. You have people proud, arrogant, thinking they will establish a kingdom that will last for thousands of years, the thousand-year Reich. Some of you are old enough to remember hearing that, perhaps. It lasted 12 years. When my soul was embittered, when my heart, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. You're asking yourself, what does that mean? What is he saying there? That's simply the code words. Those are the code words for what? Repentance. He's acknowledging that when he was bitter and angry, he was sinning by not understanding, by not appreciating what he has and what we have in Jesus Christ. And so begins his doxology after his confession of wrongdoing. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. It's the imagery here of a father with a child. There's tenderness, there's intimacy, there's a sense of, of being safe because of a strong hand that's leading you. What a wonderful way to begin the year. That's one of the reasons I've chosen this psalm. We begin the year not with anxiety, with fear, but with the confidence that God is taking us by the hand and he is leading us. And where is he leading us? Afterward, you'll receive me to glory. To glory. It's why God's people throughout the centuries have said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul could say that, contemplating his own execution. Who talks that way? To know that my destination is glory. 
And so he says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. What a wonderful confession to make at the beginning of 2024. Whom have I in heaven but you, Lord? Whatever may happen to me, to my family, to Emmanuel URC, to to the U.S., to the world, they cannot take God away from me. It's the language of Romans 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. That's the glory of this psalm, pointing ahead to Jesus Christ. Because of Christ, I may now be assured that my life will end not with misery, not with defeat, but it will end in glory. My flesh and my heart may fail, But God is the strength of my heart, and God is my portion forever. That's why Jesus would say, don't lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth. Not to say that we can't be involved in in the material world. We can't have possession. He's not saying that. He says, but don't, don't put your stock, don't put your life's interest first and foremost. Don't put your hope in material things, because those things ultimately will fade away. Those things are here for a moment, and then they're gone. But rather, be like that man when he discovered the treasure in the field. And it says, and for the joy of taking possession of that, That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. For the joy of taking possession of that, he went and sold everything he had. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who was unfaithful to you. I'm always amazed. Maybe it's more I'm irritated when I look in the the media. I look in the New York Post, and it's one of the few papers I read because... I'll be honest, because it's free on the internet. But I read it, and why do I want to be like the Kardashians? Why do I want to be like so-and-so and so-and-so? These things are fleeting. These things will fade away. And yet we have people saying, don't you want to be like them? Don't you want to be part of that set of people? Don't you want to have a life just like theirs? And you read Psalm 73 and you say, absolutely not. What do they have compared to what God has promised to me in Jesus Christ? That's why it ends with these words. But as for me, as for us, for you and me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. So, brothers and sisters, how are you looking at the world around you? How are you looking at your life? How are you looking at 2024? Are you anxious? Are you disturbed? Are you angry, bitter, resentful, envious? You've entered into the sanctuary this morning. And you've heard the word of God. Do not forget. Do not lose sight of your destiny.
Whom have I in heaven but you, O Lord? You have promised to me eternal glory. How do I know that? Because of what Jesus Christ has done. Doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. So let the world strut. Let the world boast. Let the world enjoy their moment. Their destiny is ruined. But for you and me, it is good to be near God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we must confess this morning, having heard your word, that there are times we are like Asaph in his bitterness and envy. There are times where we are brutish and animal-like in the fact that we long to be like the world and wonder why we have to suffer as we do. Yet we are thankful that in your grace, you have given this word to point us to Jesus Christ and the hope of the gospel of salvation. May we cling to that hope. May it give us the vision that enables us to see that what awaits us is not that we end our days with a sigh, but that we are headed toward glory. So bless this word to our hearts at the beginning of this year as we look expectantly for the fullness of that kingdom through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.